Welcome to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, or Eli for short. Um, and uh, today we're going to have somewhat of a brief episode. I hope uh, everyone who's been listening to the older episodes have been finding them beneficial and educational and um, edifying, um, especially with regards to apologetics. Of course, you can um, reach my video interviews and my episodes on my YouTube channel, Revealed Apologetics, which I'm happy to announce that we have reached um, around a little bit over a thousand subscribers on the YouTube channel. So I'm very, very excited. Uh, things are growing rather rapidly, and so um, that's never uh, a bad thing. So um, if you have not already um, subscribed to the YouTube channel, um, just type in Revealed Apologetics on YouTube and subscribe and uh, click the notification button for upcoming uh, interviews. Uh, just real quick, um, I will be posting uh, this on social media as well, but tomorrow at 4.30 Eastern, um, I will be having Dr. Hugh Ross and Dr. Jason Lyle on, two astrophysicists and Christian apologists, to discuss the, um, <laughs> the age-old debate uh, between the old Earth creationist view and the young Earth creationist view. So if you guys are interested in those sorts of discussions, uh, you definitely want to check out my YouTube channel, and it will be on Facebook Live on the Revealed Apologetics Facebook um, page. Um, so that discussion is going to be very, very interesting. And then again, the day after tomorrow, which I believe is Friday, I'll be having Dr. James Anderson back on uh, to discuss the differences um, between a presuppositional apologetic method and a classical approach to apologetics. And so um, some definitely some interesting and um, informative topics to be covered in the near future. Um, I'm also working to have Dr. Frank Turek on, not a presuppositionalist, but still, um, he's got some good material there. And I think um, having him on will be, uh, will be great. We'll have a good discussion. Um, and then in, uh, I believe in July, on July 29th, I'll be having Greg Kokel on from Stand to Reason. Um, to talk about some strategies and navigating through conversations with unbelievers. So hopefully um, all these episodes will be coming uh, soon and you guys will be able to listen to it here on the podcast, but of course be able to watch it live, send in your questions um, on the YouTube channel and Facebook um, page. All right, well, without further ado, I want to cover, uh, introduce the topic rather, uh, of the soul, the existence of the soul. Does the soul exist? This is going to be the question I want to deal with in this um, particular episode. What is the evidence uh, that the soul exists? I think um, the question of the existence of the soul, I think, is an important one. I think it's a, it's a central debate between the Christian theist and the materialistic physicalist. Uh, and a physicalist believes that, you know, especially with regards to human beings, that man is purely physical. There are no immaterial aspects to man. There is no immaterial soul. And so a materialistic physicalist uh, will deny the existence of an immaterial soul, where, of course, the Christian theist will affirm the existence of an immaterial soul. Okay, So, so I think this is a central debate between these two uh, positions, um, and this question of whether consciousness is a brain state, physical, right? It's reduced to, to something physical, or a mental state, um, which is reduced to immateriality, right? Is it an immaterial state reflective of an immaterial soul? We're going to be exploring this in this episode. If it can be demonstrated that man is not simply composed of physical stuff, right, but rather is a body-soul composite, I think the evidence for man's immaterial consciousness or soul would be a good foundation upon which one can infer the existence of God, right? You could, you could make a, a more a plausible argument there. Now, I know 
there are those who say, hey, Eli, I thought you were presuppositionalist. You don't use these probabilistic arguments or these, um, you know, these traditional ar arguments or proofs. Listen, um, just because I'm a presuppositionalist doesn't mean we do not use arguments and evidence, okay? Um, I, yes, I think that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for any argument whatsoever. But I do think these sub-arguments that demonstrate elements of the Christian faith are useful in our discussion as long as we do not pretend to be neutral in the way in which we present these issues. And so I want you guys to keep those important points in mind, all right? Well, let's start with, I think, a very important question. Why should Christians uh, be concerned about the question of the soul, the soul's existence, right? Why should we be concerned about this at all? Well, I think, I think this question is particularly important to the Christian because the Bible teaches that human beings have souls. And so if there's, if there's no soul, then it would seem that the biblical teaching on the soul is false. Now, I don't think that that could happen. Um, obviously, I do believe, like I said before, that the Christian worldview provides the necessary preconditions for arguments itself. But um, I do think that it's important to highlight that we can argue for these various points, um, demonstrating that, you know, the issue of the soul is the case. The souls do exist. Immaterial souls do exist. Not simply by quoting scripture that that points to this. Obviously, there's a role for that, but I think we could argue for it, um, and I think that could help move some discussions forward depending on the context of the discussion between the believer and the unbeliever, and so I think this this content will be particularly helpful uh, to folks, all right? So I think it should be noted that it is a coherent notion that the soul could be real yet cease to exist upon death of the material body. Now, that's not our position, um, but there's nothing incoherent about it on the face of it other than that it is an element of, uh, it is a belief that is um, not consistent with the Christian worldview perspective. And so I do think that, that at a more foundational level, there are issues. But just the concept itself is not logically incoherent, it seems to me. All right? Now, I think another important thing to keep in mind is that the existence of an immaterial soul would entail the impossibility of a scientific explanation for something like consciousness, and hence, an answer to the question would have to take the route of a more philosophical reflection and a theological reflection with regards to the existence of the soul. So given that science deals with, like, empirical stuff, um, something like evolution, for example, would never provide a satisfactory answer to the question of, of consciousness as immaterial, right? Um, so I think these are, are kind of important preliminary things to keep in mind with regards to why we should be concerned um, about the question, all right? Now, I think three important comments should be made uh, with respect to uh, this specific topic. First, I think, I think we need to keep in mind that the question of consciousness and the soul is, is not a scientific question. Now, people might say it's a scientific question. It's not, okay? The fields of neuroscience and neurobiology, for example, will not answer these profound metaphysical questions. So the reason that this, I, I think, is the case is because of the issue of what um, some call the uh, empirical equivalent theories, okay? So the following statements, uh, statement one, I am my brain, and statement two, I am a soul that uses my brain, are both empirically equivalent. Though based upon empirical investigation, one couldn't conclude that either dualism, the view that man is composed of body and soul, or physicalism that the material body is that there's all that there is to the body is material right it's physical um, you can't conclude either way based on those two statements which one's true okay so they're empirically equivalent 
Now, that's not to say that the question of, of whether an immaterial soul exists or not uh, can, can't be answered. It's only to say that the question itself is not a scientific or empirical one. Um, you're going to have to do a little bit um, deeper thinking with regards to what I would say philosophical reflection upon these particular issues. They're not, it's not a scientific issue, even though many people might think that it is. And, of course, those conversations come up, and you'll need to know how to navigate those sorts of discussions. Secondly... I think we need to draw an important distinction between a thing and the state of a thing. Okay? We need to draw a distinction between a thing and the state of a thing. So, for example, uh, water is a thing. It's a substance. But there are different states of water, like solid, liquid, and gas. And so we have the thing, and then we have the states of the thing. So more uh, broadly speaking, we can talk of substances like rocks, water, dogs, pencils, etc. And we can talk of uh, properties like redness, wetness, circularity, etc. And so a substance possesses certain properties, okay? These considerations are important since with regards to consciousness, uh, there exist five states of consciousness, which we're going to kind of walk through and show how this is all relevant to the question. Thirdly, I think it's important that we consider uh, what's called the law of identity, sometimes called uh, Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals. Okay, now what the heck does that mean? Well, uh, Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals. This law states that if X, say X is, you know, represents something, right? X is identical to Y. If X is identical to Y, then whatever is true of X is true of Y. Now, this law provides us a test for non-identity. Simply put, listen to this, it's not as difficult as it seems. If one can find something true of Y that is not true of X, you know, Y and X representing a certain thing, for example, in our, in our case, um, you know, consciousness, right? Then it follows that Y is not identical to X. I'm going to say that again. So this law provides for us a test for non-identity, in other words, if one can find something true of Y that is not true of X, then it follows that Y is not identical to X. Okay? So an example that can help simplify what I'm saying here, just because fire, for example, causes smoke, it does not follow that smoke is identical to fire. Or just because the brain can be stimulated so as to cause the recollection of a memory, it doesn't follow that the memory is identical to activity in the brain. So this is going to come, sorry about that, <laughs> this is going to come become important as we continue to argue in favor of the position that the brain is not identical to uh, the mind or the consciousness, okay? All right, well, what is consciousness? Is it physical or is it non-physical? Well, when defining consciousness, it becomes, I think, very necessary that we define it ostensibly, okay? Now, that's to say that we define it by... Uh, pointing to it or providing an example of what we mean. So, for example, when we ask the question, what is the color red? Uh, we define red by pointing to something that's red. So, in like fashion, we define consciousness by pointing to instances of it as first-person experiences. Right? Does, does that make sense? So, we use ostensible definitions uh, when pointing to something, something basic like that. So, when we're defining states of consciousness, uh, we want to define them using first-person ostensible uh, definitions. So brain states, on the other hand, I think is different. 
uh, brain states cannot be defined ostensibly. This is physical, right? And I think this hints us to the, to the idea that in this case, it's because there's a difference between states of consciousness and physical brain states. So this point, I think, is quite relevant since atheistic materialists, the, the atheistic materialists in rejecting the immaterial soul will equate states of consciousness with physical brain states. So unlike defining states of consciousness ostensibly, physical brain states are defined using predicates of neurobiology, physics, and chemistry. So it seems evident that this must be the case because states of consciousness and brain states are not the same thing. Right? Does that make sense? I hope you, hope you guys are following this. I hope it, this is very important. Now, returning back to the law of identity, or what we said, the, the Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals, we found that if X is identical to Y, then whatever is true of X is true of Y. So let us consider, then, uh, brain states and states of consciousness, all right? In arguing for the um, existence of the immaterial soul, we want to point out, uh, against the physicalist, the, you know, this idea that the body is purely physical, that there are things true of states of consciousness that are not true of brain states, hence refuting the notion that they're one and the same, and hence refuting the notion that the states of consciousness reduce to physical brain states, all right? So, so let's talk a little bit about these uh, five states of consciousness that we spoke about um, earlier, all right? Um, all right. There are five states of consciousness. Number one, there is sensation, two, thought, three, belief, four, desire, and five, volitions. Okay, so let's walk through this here. A sensation is pure sentience or pure awareness. So, for example, the feeling of pain, the taste of an apple, the sensation of the color purple, or the sensation of hearing a sound. Within the category of sensations, there is also subcategories. So, subcategory, which they would include things like love and anger, uh, which are themselves states we would call sensations. So, sensations are, are this is important here, sensations are neither true or false, but they can be accurate or inaccurate. Okay? Now, a thought is a propositional or mental content that, it, that can be expressed in an entire sentence. So, for example, many languages can express a single thought. The statement, um, la nieve es blanca, that's my Spanish, all right? The snow is white, la nieve, la nieve es blanca, the snow is white, expresses the same thought as when we say, um, you know, the snow is white in another language, right? That's not Spanish, okay? Uh, so, so thoughts are different than sensations in that one could have thoughts that they're not sensing, and one could have sensations that they're not thinking about. Right. So uh, unlike sensations, thoughts can be true or false. What about beliefs? A belief um, is a propositional content that one takes to be true somewhere between eh, 51 to 100 percent certainty. A belief can be true or false, and they're not equivalent to thoughts in that a thought can only exist while a person is entertaining it. But we find uh, but but we may have beliefs rather that we're not currently aware of. So another difference would be that we have thoughts we don't believe and we can have beliefs we're not thinking about. All right, so that, uh, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, what about desires? Okay, so a desire is a felt inclination towards, towards or away something, right? Desires are neither true or false and they're not the same as sensations. Volitions, our last point here. Uh, volitions are acts of free choice. They can be understood as endeavoring or trying to bring something about as you know, for example, the choice to raise one's arm or 
kick one's uh, leg up. All right. So those are the 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 five states of consciousness: sensation, thought, belief, desire, and volitions. Now here's the one million dollar question: Are the states of consciousness that I just listed physical? Well, if you think about it, it clearly seems to not be the case that they are, since in accordance with the law of identity, or the the Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals. There are things true of states of consciousness that are not true of brain states. Thoughts, for example, have no spatial location, but brain states do. They're physical. Now, there's a cheesy joke where, where it was said, philosophers may have heavy thoughts, but they don't wear neck braces. It's a little cheesy, but you kind of get the idea that thoughts are not physical things. Now, a physical brain state is neither true or false. Brain states just are what they are. Thoughts have the property of intentionality, right? What's intentionality? Intentionality is the ofness or aboutness of something. We have thoughts of this or thoughts about that. That's intentionality. However, brain states aren't of or about anything. So they're not they're not one and the same. So one can't be reduced to mental, I'm sorry, a physical because the other uh, intentionality, for example, the property of intentionality that thoughts have are not material. Um, lastly, we have first-person access to our conscious life, but we, we do not have this kind of access to our brains. So there are many things true of thoughts that are not true of our brains. And so by logical extension, it seems that they are not identical to one another. Okay, One is physical, one is not. All right. So the fact that our brain states are not identical to our mental states and that mental states seem more plausibly immaterial, whereas brain states are reducible to material physical things, it seems to follow that a powerful argument can be made for the existence of an immaterial mind or soul. Okay, And of course, you would imagine how that might relate to the existence of God as, as we understand God being an immaterial, uh, kind of a disembodied universal mind. Right, So people can make some interesting connections there. All right. Well, uh, that is under 20 minutes and uh, you can listen to this one multiple times and hopefully uh, it will click for some of you guys. I apologize if that was over some of my listeners heads, but I assume many folks who listen in um, have somewhat of a background in these areas. But um, listen to it twice. I mean, if you, if you don't understand what, what I what I'm talking about here. Uh, so, so does the soul exist? Yes. How do I know? Well, that's what the Bible reveals to us and the biblical worldview is true. Um, the biblical worldview provides the necessary preconditions for intelligible experience, but at the same time, we can argue specifically as to why we think that there is evidence for the immaterial soul. It's not simply um, something that we're asserting or dogmatically asserting because of Scripture, although the Scripture does in fact teach that man is composed of uh, material and immaterial aspects there. So uh, that's it for this episode. I... <laughs> drop that bomb on a lot of people. Hopefully uh, it'll be helpful and useful. Uh, that's all for today. So uh, again, uh, God bless. Take care. Oh my goodness. All righty. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.